Ledger's a writing podcast and an alien artifact waiting to be discovered. I'm your host, Austin Wilson. Welcome to today's show where I chat with Albert Wendland. He is the author of three sci-fi novels and a poetry collection that all star his main character, Michael Ranglin, who is a universe-exploring poet, adventurer, he, uh, his newest book is called Haunted Stars. It's available from Dogstar Books, just like the other three books are. And apart from the poetry collection, which is in fact written as if the poems are from character Michael Ranglin, the books are all kind of a, this golden age sci-fi adventure, but also they have this really fun noir aspect where you're sort of going along as Michael Ranglin solves mysteries, explores the universe, and finds incredible things that end up changing the world and the people around them. It's it's very fun. Mr. Windland is also the founder of the Seton Hill University Writing Popular Fiction Masters in Fine Arts program. Uh, he still teaches there in an adjunct capacity right now, but he also writes, and obviously that's what he's here to talk about. We talk about the the writing program, how it has affected his writing and reading, the ways in which he writes Stories that are going to star a main character across many different tales. Kind of talk about a thing I'd, I'd heard about in the past about avoiding the the next worst day in a character's life. That they've had multiple worst days of their lives. We talk about that. We talk about how he is the inspiration for, for Michael Ranglin. How it's kind of his alter ego. And we even talk about why Michael Ranglin can't just write. He has to do other things or he'll go crazy. And as I say in the interview, that's sort of a theme on our show since we all talk about writing and what it does to us when we do and don't do it, if you follow me. Make sure you check out Albert Wendland's stuff. You can go to albertwendland.blogspot.com or you can go to Raw Dog Screaming Press's website to find all of his books and even go to seatonhill.edu and find out more information about the graduate program that is writing popular fiction. Thanks to Albert for stopping by, and thank you for listening. As always, go to austinrwilson.com to find my stuff and my link tree, which is in the show notes, as always. But as for now, here's Albert Winland. Did I see that you've retired recently from teaching? Technically, yes, yes. Oh, one of those. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm, I'm certainly not full time anymore. I am doing um, some adjunct work. Yeah, and I still work in the uh, Master of Fine Arts in Writing Popular Fiction, which is the graduate component. Okay, uh, graduate program rather. And um, um, yeah, so I'm still very active in that. But everything else, undergraduate, I've dropped. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about the the master's program, the the popular yeah. the popular fiction, and your just I want to know all about how your you how you came up with you know creating that at Seton Hill, sort of the genesis of of it and how it connects with your life as a writer and the the work that you do outside of teaching. Now this this is a big story. Oh yeah, uh, hit me with yeah, it. There are a number of issues here that do come up too because. Uh, let's see. When we were, when the university, well, it was a college at that time, Seton Hill College. This was in around 2000. And uh, it was moving to a university. So the call went out for graduate programs. Lee McLean, a colleague of mine, introduced the idea of writing popular fiction. Okay. Uh, at that time, it was just going to be an MA. Now, the first time I heard about this, she had in she had written a romance novel, all right, 
and she was interested in writing romance. In fact, when she applied to our uh, our univer- our school, she uh, she mentioned that she had written a romance book on her uh, application on Intervita, but she didn't expected not to talk about it too much because she felt that would be a little bit difficult for you know academics. Well, she was very surprised because we were excited about it and we talked about it quite a bit. I was interested in science fiction. She knew that. So she came to me and introduced the idea. And I loved it when I first heard it. I felt immediately it would be a success because I just I pictured someone who's uh, uh, whose children had grown up enough so that uh, the mother at home had some time and loved to read mystery books or romance books and felt, you know, I could write this if I really worked at it. So I just felt there was a big desire by people, uh, people who had just consumed genre books and wanted to do the same thing in return, felt, yeah, I want to write this but never had any training, you know, never any experience, that much experience in writing. Um, So I really felt there was a demand for that out there. And at that time, there was, um, there was still a lot of prejudice in writing programs, graduate writing programs against popular culture, genre fiction. Um, We still run into that, by the way. Yep. Well, this was a real landmark and, it's it's much to the uh, uh, praise of Seton Hill that they were very interested in this. They were interested in my science fiction whenever they hired me. <laughs> okay, and uh, yeah, they they were open to that. We had to argue it. It started as an MA, and then years later, um, at first Lee was in charge of it. That I became in charge of it. And one of my major missions was to make it into an MFA program, which meant that it was a terminal degree. And uh, what's people, terminal degree mean? It means people can get jobs, all right, with that degree. A master's degree is seen as a step to a PhD. Um, if you were trying to get a position in just in teaching English literature, let's say at a university, you would need more than the MA, you would need the PhD. But if you were trying to get a position, especially a part-time position in, in teaching writing, composition, things like that, you can do that with the MFA. So people can get that degree and go get a position in a university with an MFA. Um, we didn't. We didn't want to push that at first because we were scared of that prejudice yeah. that was still out there. Yeah, we thought we'd get a lot of questions. Ah, no, no, you can't do this with just popular fiction. And I definitely want to talk about that prejudice and specifically the you know the comparison between popular fiction, literary right. fiction, academia, that kind of stuff. But before we get into that, briefly, uh, for anyone who maybe doesn't know the difference between a college and a university and how that plays a, a part into having a, a writing of popular fiction, a master's in fine art, what's the what's the distinction between those two? Uh, if if it's easy enough to, to kind of... <laughs> no, it is. A college offers uh, 
bachelor's degrees, but not anything higher. Okay. A university can offer master's degrees and PhD programs. Okay. Now, we Easy do enough. not have PhD programs at Seton Hill, although there's always been talk back and forth about that. But um, we do have terminal degrees in a number of programs that just require a master's degree. Okay. Um, like in our case, we, we did need the MFA and we, we had to argue that and get it approved. That's the basic difference. Okay. Do, do you think maybe not? I, I was trying to figure out which area maybe I wanted to ask about as far as whether or not we are too invested in defining the things that we write and the things that we read. And I would have been thrilled at the possibility of taking a, a writing popular fiction course, but it didn't exist where I was. And I don't even know that I would have known how to look for it. And I've lucked into, you know, finding writers as I was growing up who sort of battled against those distinctions between academia and literary. And are we too obsessed with classification or is it needed <laughs> to a certain degree? Uh Basically, yes, I think we are too obsessed with yeah. it. Uh, I mean, there are some distinctions. I, I do think that there, and, and you will get uh, argument about this. I do think there are some differences between what we call literary fiction and sure. um, genre fiction. Genre fiction is a better word than popular fiction because... Realist or literary fiction, realistic fiction, it's it it's it it tries to tell a story that is unique, that deals deeply into the human condition at the time. The uh, uh, trying to write a story that's that's profound, that's interesting, and all of that is well and is well and good. Genre fiction addresses more specific goals. The whole, the whole reason why genre fiction came about is because somebody wrote something that a lot of readers liked. Yeah. And the reader said, give me more of that. You know, I'll buy more of that. So what uh, publishers and writers basically pinned down is what exactly the appeal was there so that I can give you something that's similar but that I can change it at the same time. Right. I mean, that, that's the whole point about genres. It's it's the same thing, but different. Yeah. In mystery, and and it if literary fiction, and, and let me back up a little bit more. Whenever <laughs> I was, I'm sorry about that. Whenever I was uh, in charge of the program, there was some study that came out, some academic study somewhere that argued that after uh, uh, testing a lot of readers of literary fiction and popular fiction, genre fiction, they found that the people who read literary fiction scored better on tests that tried to look for how sympathetic and empathetic you could be with other people. Huh. Okay? Yes, yes. And um, the argument that came out of that is, Literary fiction does it better. <laughs> you, you understand more about your fellow human being by reading literary fiction or realistic fiction. And I got phone calls at the time uh, because I was in charge of a, of a program for popular fiction. 
and they said, well, how do you react to this? And they expected an argument in return. And I said, no, I, I agree. <laughs> I mean, I've taught literary fiction. I understand that. The point is, is that genre fiction addresses a particular need in its readers. The mystery story reasserts and continually proves over and over that a great evil that's committed against culture can be solved. The culture yeah. can be found and punished. There's, there's a reassurance in genre fiction. And it's, and, and it's specific to each genre. In the romance genre, the basic argument is that two people who are very different can come together and form a bond, you know, a lasting bond that will, that will help them get through, uh, get through life. Uh, and that, that reassurance is there. And, and even though you've seen it many times before, just hearing variations on it, you know, getting different approaches to it. Uh, that's, that's the appeal. That's the satisfaction. Science fiction kind of argues that the, the universe can be understood, that, that there are some rational elements and common scientific principles that say that you possibly can control these things or at least deal with them. That we have ways of moving into the universe. That reassurance is there about a about a somewhat rational view toward the universe. So those genres are very important to their readers. It provides that reassurance, um, and and that's just as strong. It just gives that to the readers, provides them with satisfaction in a somewhat different way. Okay. Um, instead of the general one that was going on with the literary fiction. Yeah. That's where I see the differences. I mean, I, I think they both have appeal and they both can go back and forth. I mean, Crime and Punishment is a mystery novel. It's a murder thriller. Right. Darn good one. <laughs> That's the thing with, with literary fiction. I always feel like I have to put it in quotes, but I mean, it is a, it's a classification that we have. I mean, mm -hmm. genre fiction I think is much more comfortable delivering on the promise that yeah, yeah, the, right. the genre that you're coming into it. Like I love romantic comedies and, and when they're done well, like I, I know what's going to happen, but delivering that promise to me interestingly or in a memorable way, those are the reasons why I go for, for genre fiction. You know, I want to be given the the promise that, okay, Hey, I'm reading a sci-fi novel. I'm expecting certain things. Yes. And yes, Literary fiction's uh, a little bit, a little bit uh, more comfortable with not delivering on those promises, and, or not even delivering three act structure. Sometimes just kind oh, of yeah. striking yeah. off the beaten yeah. path. Yeah, it's if anything, I mean, there's a promise in literary fiction in the sense that my promise is that you're going to be very surprised. Yeah, you know, you you might be challenged, yes, or you're going to get a story that that you don't know about that does not follow the tropes does not fulfill all the expectations of genre fiction yes genre readers come with expectations and you know if you're going to write in that genre that's what you have to supply we we talk about that all the time um but if if there is a promise to literary fiction it's surprise uniqueness newness and a bit of 
either an emotional or intellectual challenge. Okay. Um, and I, I think it's valid that at the end, yeah, you are going to have more empathy with other, other life experiences than what you yourself might've, might've run into in genre fiction. Yeah. You know, what's coming. Um, but still there's surprises on it. You know, there are yeah. variations. You can do different things. Um, but yeah, yeah, that I, to me, that's the distinction. Although there are all kinds of overlaps, and especially now, even among genres, there's so much overlap. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And part of the the uh, master's program for for writing popular fiction, you're also writing sci-fi novels at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Your your main character right now, the big character across the books you're writing, is Michael Ranglin. Mm-hmm. Newest book's called Haunted Stars. We're going to get to that. But I really want to talk about how you start creating a character who has more has this life that he's already lived before page one. Where do you begin when it's time to create Michael Ranglin? Did he show up first? Did a story show up first? The process of coming to this character and bringing him to the page, how, how did it happen? First of all, I had long thought of doing a series with um, a main character who was a kind of consultant for what conditions on alien worlds. Now, the, the, the reason for this, the necessity for that character, was that the kind of science fiction that I liked the most, that I enjoyed the most, was in outer space, very often, most often, on an alien planet. I mean, the kind of science fiction that um, determined me when I was growing up was uh, Andre Norton novels, Paul Anderson, Arthur C. Clarke. Um, and the things I loved the most were the creation of an alien world. Even if this world was a rather obvious imitation of different locations on Earth, you know, the Arctic, the desert, the jungle, things like that. Um, I love that stuff. So I needed a character who would be continuous, who I could play with, who I could build up. And and in no way was this character defined at the beginning. No, that, that wasn't the case. I did not sit down and thoroughly define this character at all. I just wanted someone who would be free enough and required enough to go to different alien worlds. All right. So I thought of him as, as a writer, first of all, a person who had written a lot about what, not just physical requirements on an alien world, no, but, but the kind of mental, emotional reactions to it. And that, certain businesses or colonies or whatever on these different worlds, if certain mysteries, problems came up, situations, they would go to him. Uh, They might bring him in as the kind of fixer or the explorer. So I thought of these stories as he would come in, he would start looking into it, he'd wander off into the alien world, have all these, you know, adventures out there, and then inevitably solve the problem and and leave. Um, The series would be based on that. I played with that for years. Okay. When it finally came to actually writing the novel, 
I had to flesh out the character some. And also, I felt I had moved beyond, and science fiction itself had moved beyond that type of story. I needed more. I didn't think I could just do variations of Andre Norton's stories. <laughs> you know, I, I th- there had to be much more depth here. And I, I felt that this wasn't going to work. My series was going to be much more complicated once I got into it. So... I, I used that nature. I, I started asking questions. Well, if I want him to be free, what's going to happen? What has to be present in his life? He had to be a little bit independently wealthy, that he'd had enough money to do these kinds of things, to go exploring. Because I dropped the um, um, what troubleshooter kind of image. He would do this either out of his own interest or... His friends might ask him. Um, uh, just the whole thing I wanted to make a lot more complicated. So I built up his character as I went along, basically asking questions about what I needed, what I needed to know to get him through this story that I was putting together. And in the first book, which was The Man Who Loved Alien Landscapes, and of course that's Wranglin, I, I brought him in. I wanted to leave a lot of mystery to him. I didn't want to fill out his backstory quite yet. I wanted him to be a bit unknown to others, a bit of a loner himself, and that's rather important. Um, he, he questions a lot, and I got into this in the first book, whether he likes alien worlds more than he likes people. You know, is he just trying to escape humanity in this way? And there's always this conflict in him. So this was stuff I could play with. But once I did the first book, then I went back and did two novels. Originally, it was just supposed to be one novel, but issues came up and I knew I had another story to tell. Never a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, right. As, as long as things keep coming, you know, that's fine. <laughs> um, so I've done basically two prequels now, a collection of poetry that is supposedly written by Wranglin, which was fun. And I've used all of these to build up his character more. And actually now I'm working on, at last, a sequel to the very first book. Um, because I think I've, I've, I've built things enough. Um, I mean, I, I could have put together a background for him. That, that wouldn't have been a problem. But I couldn't have done it in as much detail and gotten as deeply into his emotional development as I managed to do by doing the sequels. Okay. So you didn't know him until you wrote the sequels? I, I mean, you didn't know him deep like you do now until the sequels existed. Well, until, uh, let's see. I know, I, you know, I knew him. Yeah. Because, I mean, let's face it, I based him pretty much on myself. I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. And that's always easy to do. And it's good if you have a series character, you know, because you'll be coming back to this character all the time. Yeah. I mean, there, there are drastic differences between him and me, but I could, I could use personal quirks i could i could use what he liked for breakfast you know things like that that was easy um but yeah it's it's 
And I didn't want to explore everything right at the beginning. I wanted to take my time and build him up. So, and I I want to give a valid answer to the question because I always think this is a question for um, writers sitting down to write their first novel. Yeah. Just how much do I need to know Uh my protagonist? You need to know enough to start the story. And you need to be able to answer the questions that will come up about your protagonist as the book goes on. Okay. Yeah. I I think that's the real answer there. I think also it helps to get past the hurdle of maybe thinking you have to know the city they were born in and the, all of the, I mean, those, sometimes those things help. I'm not saying those are bad things to know, but you don't have to know those things necessarily. No, I, and, and like some craft books argue that, you know, write the entire biography of your uh, main character. If you want to do that, that's fine. Sure. Because it does give you stuff to work with, but 90% of it might not get into the novel anyway. So you know, it, it helps you to know that character, yes. But I, I think the other thing is, yeah, just having an open mind as you're going along and when you need to stop and figure things out, definitely stop. That's the other thing. <laughs> That's, yeah, exactly. Definitely stop. And also don't use research to derail your writing process because uh, you can, I think it's a an easy trap to fall into to be like, you know what? I'm going to know, I'm going to get to know this character before I start. I'm going to write everything they ever did. And you're not writing the story. You're literally just <laughs> exactly. writing a bio, (laughs) which I know helps some people, but you know, you want to get to the page since you knew you were going to want to wanting to do a series, tell more stories with, with, uh, Wranglin. I saw, I think it was Dennis Lehane or maybe someone asked Dennis Lehane this one time. I'm not sure where it came from, but talking about series with recurring characters Mm -hmm. and pushing past the sort of trap of, having the character have another worst day of their life. <laughs> and like yeah. it, it stuck with me. Like I couldn't now, whenever I'm thinking of series or I'm reading a series, like your book, your books absolutely reminded me of, of some stuff I've read by Jack McDevitt, which I love. Oh yes. Yes, I do too. I do too. The, the Pr- Priscilla Hutchins books. Mm-hmm. I feel like Wrangland and Priscilla Hutchins would probably get along very well. That character, it <laughs> reminds me a lot of, of those things. And I, I love mm-hmm. those books. So, but how do you, how do you, when you're putting your stories together, avoid that pitfall of this is Michael Wrangland's worst day of his life. And he's going to have another worst day of his life after this. How do you avoid that trap? First of all, he's always reluctant to get involved. Yeah. Yeah. When, whenever people come to him or whenever situations arise, it's always, no, do I really have to do it? Or, so, and then what happens is he starts pursuing things. Yeah. He gets interested. He can't stop. Um, once he becomes part of the investigation, the pursuit, the exploration, whatever it is, um, he wants the answer too. He kind of transcends the, the original charge that he agreed to do. And, um, in fact, at the end of the books, I I think sometimes you forget that he was actually doing this for somebody else (laughs) and he comes back and says, Hey, I have the answers for you. No, no. Oh, really? Okay, good. 
Um, yeah, I, I don't see them as, for him anyway, as the worst day in his life. I really feel he enjoys. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not torment for him. Um, he, he claims he wants a nice, easy, relaxed life, but he doesn't. He obviously doesn't. So do you think he has to lie to himself to, to set, to pretend that like, listen, I'm, I just want to write my stuff. I, I just want to do, you know, my, my little life. Mm-hmm. Does he have to lie to himself before he can just accept it and be like, yeah, let's go do it. If he, well, first of all, if he sat down and did nothing but write, he'd get bored to death and he would leave. Uh, is that, I mean, is that, based, is that part based on you? Uh, well, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Not that you mention it. Yeah. Well, I, it's, I, that was my, one of my bigger questions is, I've seen that you've written poetry. And then when I was reading uh, The Man Who Loves Alien Landscapes, I was like, oh, Michael Wrangland's a poet too. And then I knew you had just traveled. And I was like, exploring some alien landscapes, this might just be. So if he would just sit down and write, he would go crazy. And and going crazy is a big theme on this show and how we how we avoid it and how writing also makes us crazy. So let's talk about that. Michael Ranglin avoiding going crazy by not writing and having that be based on you. Okay. Well, well, there's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. Well, let me talk about Ranglin. Then maybe I'll get back to talking about me. First of all, Ranglin is conflicted. Yeah. Now this, this is something I definitely was dealing with in this novel. Okay. Right at the end, you find out one of the conflicts that he's been carrying with him for years that was in the background in the first book, but was not really defined until this book. So when you say this book, do you mean Haunted Stars? Yes. Yes. Yeah. The recent, the most recent one. Yeah. He's, he's a little haunted himself because he knows the appearance that he gives to people is not the totally honest one. Okay. And on top of that, there is another thing that's involved with him that really conflicts him because he would he feels great guilt and yet great responsibility for this and it comes down to everything i say leads to something else sure <laughs> <laughs> the the central element of the stories is um they take place 200 years in the future but about 100 years in the future Something was discovered. It popped up out of the uh, the what what the central seafloor spreading. It it comes out of plate tectonics millions of years ago. An alien race, which is now extinct, dropped something into a, a deep trench um, where the continents collide and sink into each other. Um, and they've been down there long enough that now they're coming back up in the in the middle of the ocean. One pops up and it contains the secret of uh, faster than light travel. So that completely changes the future. What these objects are, they're called CLIPS, which was short for carrier locked integrated programs. I just came up with anything, you know. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. But they're they, they change the technology and the history of the human race overnight. Uh, it's, it's like 
you know, suddenly within a week, uh, a world that had no computers at all are introduced to Apple computers. Okay. The technology just jumps up like this. History changes. Humanity goes out into the universe. And various, they find that they, they, everybody starts looking for these clips because they're obviously whoever finds them is going to be incredibly wealthy. Um, the next one that's found is on another planet and it's, uh, it leads to anti-gravity, which changes everything. Um, gravity control, I should call it. The next one, Michael Ranglin found. Okay. And Technically, it's purely accidental that you find these. You just have to go to planets that have plate tectonics that are active, geologically speaking. He finds this. It creates a huge habitat in space called annulus, so a ring-shaped object that looks a bit like a rainbow or looks a bit like the ring nebula in outer space, astronomy that comes into it. Um, but he also discovers something else. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a big secret, and he carries it, and he keeps it to himself because he knows it will drastically change human civilization, human history. There is a way that only he has discovered to more easily find more. He finds the next one, the fourth one. Well, this gets complicated because this is all in the uh, uh, flashbacks, or not the flashbacks, but the prequels. The prequel books, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the, the first clip he found was so dangerous that he destroyed it. That was the first book in a suspect universe. Then the next so-called fourth clip he finds. Well, don't give it all away. No, nah, I guess I shouldn't. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. Uh, stop me. Stop me. The big thing about Michael. Well, I also had I do. I have a very specific question about annulus. Okay. Because your descriptions of it in, in the first book are great. Uh, it immediately was a thing that I was super connected with and I, I thought it was awesome. And when writing sci-fi, the utilization of pseudoscience or real science, mm -hmm. where do you fall? Uh, like, did you consult people to come up with annulus and how it would work? Like as I'm reading books, like, like ring world by Larry Niven and, and mm -hmm. finding the, the middle or the like really far ends of the spectrum where I'm like, okay, they don't give a crap about, real science. So I just have to go with, with whatever Adrian yeah. Tchaikovsky is some of the stuff I've been reading recently where it's just like, okay, this book science out the window and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, where, where do you fall? Did you do research to come up with annulus or is it just pure fiction? In this case, it was fiction, but well, let's put it this way. I, I have a physics background. Okay. Yeah. Originally I was a double major in physics and English. So I know some of the science. I've also studied astronomy and geology just on my own, but I've studied them a lot. For example, that bit about the plate tectonics. I knew about that. Yeah. Thought, oh, the idea was, oh, the perfect bearing place for a treasure. Yeah. <laughs> Stick it in a subduction you, zone. You can't not... bury it further than that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's it. It's gone. But it might pop up again millions of years later. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what this race wanted originally. I, I, I feel there are two kinds of research. There's the research that you're always doing, the reading that you're always doing. And you just accumulate a lot of knowledge and you can use that. 
that that's what I did here. I, I use what I know about astronomy. I use what I know about physics. I won't follow the laws slavishly. Okay. Yeah. For the faster than light propulsion in the first book, I, I can't say I was just pulling things out of the air, but that was basically it. And I mean, there is there there are so many contradictions in physics now. It's it's almost a scandal between you know the theories of quantum physics and general relativity. They don't agree. They just don't match up. And you wonder, well, what the heck is going on then? So I used some of that in the pseudo explanations for the light drive, that there are all these contradictory explanations for it. But the trick was, and here was the great advantage of the clips, nobody really had to understand how it worked. It just worked. Uh, it's alien technology. And they might speculate about it, but it, it's really good in terms of how you're dealing with, with the humanity in the book, because here's something that is so great and so useful and people can make so much money out of it, but nobody understands. No one knows how it works. <laughs> and so, so it's a constant reminder of, well, you know, humanity is pretty little uh, in comparison to these ancient races from the past. And, and this causes some issues. They're, you know, an underlying set of uh, concerns that are going on that humanity is getting these great gifts from the past, but they might not be dealing with them as well as they could. We have a, uh, a history of dealing with things yeah. poorly, us yeah. humans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and boy, I, I got into that more in this book than I had yeah. in earlier books. Yeah. yeah, there are some real wrong things going on. I really think you deftly blend a, a, a few genres, honestly, because it mm -hmm. it reads like golden age sci-fi. I I love that I love that era. Um, I'm obsessed with some of those early quote unquote grandmasters or yeah. however they're phrased. Um, and your stuff reads very similar to that to that style, but it also feels very much like a noir yes. detective story. And yes. I'm yeah. so interested in those genre elements and how you go about blending. Does it feel natural to you to that? That's just the mode you're writing in, or are you doing editing with an eye toward putting more or less of a certain genre in? Okay. No, it doesn't come from the editing. It, it starts there at the beginning. I, uh, Whenever I was um, the 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 theater or the not the theater the uh, elevator pitch sure. for uh, the first book was it's a murder mystery it's a story that starts as a murder mystery and turns into an interstellar treasure hunt and I said think of the Maltese Falcon in outer space okay it's a good and, pitch and, yeah you can see the connections there yeah. definitely no I um. I love noir. I love all those those films. I love Raymond Chandler, you know. Uh, and I did want to get a bit of that tone, especially into the first book. Okay. Um, now, usually I start out with that notion. And it's not, it's not even something that I, I choose. I just liked it so much. And I thought, oh, I could play with this. I could deal with this and putting it in outer space. Um, and then what was, what was great 
I was, uh, somebody was reviewing the book and the person called it space noir. Yeah. I had never thought of that. And I thought, Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I even wrote a blog entry about it and tried to find the roots for it and, you know, how it developed and things like this. Um, yeah, I was, I was tickled when somebody read it in that way. And I'm, I'm tickled the way you're reading that too. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I knew that Ranglin was not Philip Marlowe. Um, I didn't want to go that far. I didn't want to get into the sexism of that role. You know, I wanted him to be much looser, more flexible. But that notion of <laughs> walking down the mean streets of outer space, uh, what the mean star lanes, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And those influences just come about, you know, yeah. The other books, well, this one, The Haunted Stars has, has a bit of that, but it's, it's, it has a bit more punch to it. It's some of the noir stories create a particular world and how you deal with that world. But I felt that this world in Haunted Stars was a little bit bigger, you know, dealing with, with, political conspiracies, um, um, crime on the high seas of space, so to speak. It's funny. That was one of the things I thought about because it gets mentioned when, when we're first introduced to Michael Ranglin and the man who loved alien landscapes, he's being kind of strong armed by two police officers. And one of the things you mention is that faster than light travel has drastically changed police work. Yep. And I had never, ever thought about that before or encountered a book that sort of confronted me with the possibility that faster than light travel means criminals are gone, man. Yeah. <laughs> you can get out of town very fast. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> it was such an interesting wrinkle. And I mean, realistically, it was presented in maybe half of a paragraph <laughs> in the first book. So I'm so interested to see where you where you take that because it isn't a really at least as far as my reading has gone unmined uh, idea that okay. faster than light travel produces this sort of infinite escape route. <laughs> and um, well, this was and in fact some of these issues come up in uh, Haunted Stars because um, um, there, there's talk at the end of. You know, that eventually they want to create some kind of space patrol, so to speak, uh, because some of the things going on in outer space, they're just there's no control over them because of that. And um, I was I was kind of extending some things from the high seas of Earth, you know, using some some research, some material there. But, uh, yeah, the those actual possibilities are there. And this, this is one of the fascinating things about world building. When you include certain rules in your world, and that's, that's what world building is all about. You, do, you don't go wild and create everything. You create rules that define what's going on in your world. For the faster than light travel, if for the people outside the travel, the change is instantaneous. Okay. So if, but if, if you're on a world and somebody jumps into a spaceship far, far away, they can get to you instantaneously. But if you're aboard the ship, 
two days and what was it? 17 hours uh, pass, which, which was great in terms of narrative because it gave the downtime that I needed between big events taking place, action sequences, um, volcanoes, <laughs> glaciers melting and things like that. And that choice was was fascinating because in order to track someone in uh, um, light space, yeah, you need to put a tracker onto their ship. And there are ways to do this. The tracker gets to wherever the ship is going, and then it shoots a message back to the original source so that you can find where the ship went. And since it comes back instantaneously, you can follow right away. So yeah, those, those kind of rules, if, if they're interesting, they will lead to fascinating concepts in the stories themselves, and they will help you write the story. Right. You know, coming up with ideas uh, in the same way as you suggested. I, I want to go running out and think about that a little bit more now and <laughs> see what I can get out of it. It's a fun idea. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it definitely presents a lot of possibilities. As far as poetry goes, uh-huh. was, was Michael Ranglin a poet? Yes. Always? He was always a poet? He was always a poet. Always a poet? Always a poet. Because I was so interested. I, I haven't read the, the the book of his poetry yet, but I'm very interested to. And I've spoken to you know a handful of poets here on the show, and mm-hmm. I'm so interested in the differences between... There's just so much stuff. I We could have done an entire episode just about me talking to you about Michael Ranglin's poetry. Yeah. I'm just so interested in how you write poems from his perspective and if you feel they are helping you further define his character outside of telling a story where he's capable of saying anything because the poems are these almost like smaller snapshots of his personality. Talk Mm -hmm. to me about the ways you've written poems as Michael Ranglin. I I had a number of poems. Yeah. Poems written by myself. And remember when I said, I feel like I'm a little bit like uh, Michael Ranglin. Yeah. Um, So I felt I could make these fit. It was, I had written the first book, Man Who Loved Alien Landscapes. Then I went back to do In a Suspect Universe. And if you want the potted version of that, it was Adam Strange meets Michael Ondaatje's The English Patient. Which is another good pitch. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it myself. (laughs) Yeah, a very different kind of story. Okay. And here's where, yeah, I, I began thinking this, this is going to be a different kind of story and a different kind of voice. I mean, my, my series is, is peculiar in that it's, it works more, it's, it's not linear. It more, works more like a spiral. Okay. I've gone back. I'm going to go forward, you know, over and over, but it keeps building. It's, it's building up one massive world and one massive confrontation. Things are going to get a little bit out of control <laughs> when I get to the sequel, um, bigger things will start taking place. This was another reason why I had to go back because when I did the first book, I knew I was introducing concepts that if I keep on going with them, I'm leading to bigger and bigger confrontations. And I didn't want to get there yet. I wanted to take my time. That's why I went back. Anyway, um, when I was writing, when I started writing in a suspect universe, I had this feeling, wait a minute, I can take these poems that I've written, which I've published only in Eye Contact, which is the uh, college magazine at uh, Seton Hill. And I thought, I can use these. 
because a lot of these deal with aspects of, of, or can deal with aspects of Michael's personality. And then I thought there are, there are other areas where I could, I could, he's not easily, but you know, I, I, I saw freedom where I could write poems through his point of view. So when I was writing in a suspect universe, aware that I was going to bring out that poetry book, I included some clips of the poems in there just just to arouse some interest. And uh, I knew that when I did the anthology, the collection, that um, um, I would be giving the complete versions of those poems. And um, uh, whenever I, what, what? The, the the frontispiece or the, the the opening quotation for In a Suspect Universe was a quote from one of Michael Ranglin's poems in the next book. Yeah. So when I got to that, about oh, half the poems, maybe, maybe less than half, were old poems that I already had that I reworked uh, to fit his voice a little bit more, to fit his his perspective from where he was. And this, this gave me more for his personality. Um, I mean, if, if definitely take a look at, if you haven't already, the introduction to the poetry book, because I had a lot of fun there. I, I was writing in the voice of the editor who's introducing a book of poetry by Michael Ranglin, which is really my poetry. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, this was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Doing that, yeah, yeah. So I, I knew that was coming, and I added a lot of poems that were more directly related to things in his life. You can see how he responded to earlier characters, to people he he was in love with. There were there were direct connections. There's there's a whole batch of poems in the uh, uh, temporary planets for transitory days that refer to incidents in in a suspect universe because there's he, he imagines a whole other life for one of the characters in that book. And this, this collection of poetry, yes, he's supposed to be a poet, but he's supposed to be a very, very professional and academic poet. Uh, which if you ever say that about a, if you create a character like that in a novel, it's always, you got a problem. Because if you write a sample of his poetry and when people read it, they say, well, it's, it's okay, but it's not as good as what he's supposed to be. Right. <laughs> How I got around that was I said, all of these poems that appear in that anthology were just from a notebook that he carried with him. They were basically just notes, yeah. not necessarily completed poems. And in fact, uh, uh, you'll see he drops it off to a publisher. That's the event that's described in the introduction. It's funny because the book I'm writing right now, which is a sequel to the first book, right at the end is a scene where he decides, I'm going to get rid of this notebook. <laughs> I've had these poems long enough. Some of them, and this was another theme somewhere along the way, an incident, because of some peculiar physics involved, he forgets some of the things that take place in, in a suspect universe. And the only thing he has left are the poems. And he says, oh, this is like, this is like having archaeological remains of myself. I'm, I'm trying to put together a history for myself by reading them. I don't like doing this. this yeah. 
person. So yeah, he, he gets rid of the notebook right at the end of this, uh, this novel that I'm writing now. Is making him a writer the most torturous thing that you've done to him? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> not by far, huh? No, no, no. Well, the, the only reason I want, I knowing that you've taught and that you had a hand in founding the, the program at Seton Hill mm-hmm. there for popular, for popular fiction. And just thinking about writing and, and reading, I'm curious if teaching has affected how you can or cannot turn off your analytical mind as you are reading for, for pleasure or you're writing for pleasure. And how has that affected you in the things that you love? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it is a different mindset. Yeah. When you're teaching, although there is a similarity too, when, when I'm teaching literature and I do that most of all, like, but I also teach history occasionally, um, film, things like that. But when you're teaching creative works, I feel that my role as a teacher is, is not to transfer knowledge. Okay. I think that's pretty dull and most people aren't going to remember it anyway. I mean, it's, it's, it's the theory of breaking open the brain and pouring information into it. I see my role as a teacher as enabling self-directed learning in the student. My, my whole thing is to get them interested in the material. So when I go in, I want to convey the excitement that I felt when I was reading this, the, uh, the strength of it that this is really interesting. Much of my, my what discussion about the book comes down to the emotional reaction that we have to it. You know, this is, this is really stating what it was like then. And, and you know, you, you will learn more about human behavior uh, by, by looking at these books, talking about that empathy thing that we were discussing before. But the whole point is that, yeah, there is a slightly different attitude because if you're going to deal strictly with literary criticism, yeah, you're always breaking it apart. You're always being analytic. You're always trying to look more closely what's really being said as, a, yeah. as opposed to what comes up on the page. And every now and then, I know, I know when, I'm, especially in poetry, I'll write a line that is, I know what it's supposed to mean, but I'm also making it a little bit ambiguous. And I think, Oh no, wait a minute. Somebody might interpret it this way. A different way. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but those things slip in there and you you try to have control over that. But but then it's not a, an interesting poem either if right. it's, you know, A, B, C, D and it's very clear. Yeah, you gotta turn that off. Because ultimately what you're doing when writing the book is telling a story. Okay. I feel that my whole point. The most important thing in any novel, in any piece of writing, is the readability of that story. Like, like there are a lot of craft books out there that talk about the overall structure of a novel. You know, how you put it together, act one, act two, act three. I don't think there's a reader in the world who sits down and looks at a book and says, oh, I don't like this because act one stopped too early or something like that. Or I can't find act two. No. That what's important to them is turning pages. To me, the most important thing besides, I mean, I, I can see why structure can help you in as a writer, but as a reader, what counts is that at the end of a chapter, I want to read the next chapter. At the end of a paragraph, I want to read the next paragraph. 
And that's what you have to think about when you write the book. You want to be, you're a communicator and you're communicating a story. That's the most important thing. You can include things. You can include a statement that, well, somebody who knows deconstructionist criticism reads this line. Ooh, they might, you know, perk up a little bit. But that can't stop someone from reading who is not going to catch the association in that. What it comes down to is, yeah, it's, 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 it's getting through, making the story interesting enough, compelling enough that the reader will just want to keep on going. Yeah. Whenever, and here's a connection with the teaching. Here's how the writing affects the teaching. Whenever I taught history, I, I uh, uh, often did a um, European history course, a two-semester course. So I'm starting way back at the beginning and going to today. I introduce it by saying, this is the most exciting novel you have ever read. <laughs> I mean, it even has a three-part structure, by the way, which I just came to me now. You know, the ancient world, the Middle Ages. and yeah. But yeah, you have to see it in that way because every, these are people making decisions about lives, their own lives and what they want out of it. And because of that, that's creating history. It's influencing history. And everything that's done in one era affects the next era, whether it's a reaction to that era. So think of it as always to be continued. <laughs> We've got some tremendous characters here, tremendous personalities. And uh, yeah, that sense of, of ongoing development, you know, plot development. That was a way to look at history. And I, I, that was one of the things I really tried to convey in that course. Um, so, yeah, it works both ways. Goes back and forth, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, your novel Haunted Stars is out now from Raw Dog Streaming Press, as are the other books, uh, Manual Loved Alien Landscapes in a Suspect Universe. Uh, and is it Temporary Planets? Temporary Planets for Transitory Days. Poetry by Michael Ranglin the star of the novels all out from raw dog streaming press. Uh, thank you so much for stopping by. This has been awesome. Oh, this, this was great. I really enjoyed it. As mentioned, all four of Albert's books are available through dog star books. That's an imprint of raw dog screaming books. You can check those out online anywhere. Haunted stars is the most recent. The very first one is the man who loved alien landscapes. That's where Michael Wrangland debuts. Check that out. Buy it from their website. You can also grab it from Bookshop. I have an affiliate link that I include in the show notes. Check that out. Thank you very much to Albert for coming by and talking about the MFA program, his books, poetry, exploring the universe, all that fun stuff. Sci-fi is a, a very dear genre to me. I love it a lot. So I appreciate chatting with him about it. And thank you for listening. I really appreciate that as well. If you have time, make sure you give the show a like rate it, review it on Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, Spotify, anywhere you can, and share the show with somebody else who writes or loves writing. Thanks. Thanks.